0: Chapter 12, From the Church Fathers to the Reformation, The Theology of the Kingdom The view of the kingdom of God outlined in the previous chapter was not developed in the last few decades. It was not invented by kingdom theologians or Christian reconstructionists. Some individuals in these groups do hold some distinctive beliefs about the kingdom and its advancement in history, but the basic outlines of the doctrine have been taught within the church since its inception. We believe that the kingdom of God will triumph in history and on earth. This is what makes our view of the kingdom different from other positions. There are many other issues that deserve attention, but in the interest of space, we can make only passing references to them. This also appears to be the main point of issue between Mr. Hunt and ourselves, The purpose of this chapter is to note some major figures from church history who taught an optimistic view of the kingdom's future on earth. We do not claim that this was the only, or even the dominant view, but it has always been accepted as being within the bounds of orthodoxy. And this brief survey will prove that dominion theologians are not necessarily being seduced by the new age. Church Fathers On one point, all early Christian writers were agreed, Christ will be victorious, justin, Around 110-165, to one of the early Christian apologists, defenders of the faith, wrote that the Old Testament had predicted the life and death of Christ and that the Father has declared that he will subdue all his enemies under him, Christ. Justin believed that even dreadful persecutions, beheadings, crucifixions, wild beasts, chains, fire could not stand in the way of the victory of Christ's people. On the contrary, the more such things happen, the more do others and in larger numbers become faithful and worshipers of God through the name of Jesus. Justin recognized the change that had taken place in those who became Christians as a fulfillment of prophecy. We who were filled with war, and mutual slaughter, and every wickedness, have each through the whole earth changed our warlike weapons, our swords into plowshares, and our spears into implements of tillage. And we cultivate piety, righteousness, philanthropy, faith, and hope, which we have from the Father himself, through him who was crucified. Irenaeus, around 120-202 to 202. One of the major early theologians from Asia Minor taught that Adam himself had been redeemed by Christ. Though Adam had been conquered all life, having been taken away from him, still, when the foe was conquered in his turn, Adam received new life. Christ, by raising from the dead, had conquered the foe. Christian writers differed on the timing of the kingdom. According to the British historian J.N.D. Kelly, however, the emphasis of the apostolic church was that a decisive victory had already been won by Christ's death and resurrection. Thus, history had reached its climax and the reign of God, i.e. the kingdom of God, as so many of our Lord's parables imply, had been effectively inaugurated. The hope of the early church was a twofold consciousness of blessedness here and now in this time of waiting and blessedness yet to come. Kelly notes that this assurance of living in the messianic age gradually weakened in the second generation of the church, and a view arose that the kingdom was an exclusively future reality. In spite of this decline in the apostolic view of the kingdom, Wherever religion was alive and healthy, the primitive conviction of enjoying already the benefits of the age to come was kept vividly before the believer's consciousness. Athanasius This view continued into the following centuries. Athanasius, around 305-373, to 373, called the father of orthodoxy and the major orthodox theologian during the Nicene Controversy, placed central emphasis on the significance of Christ's first advent. In fact, one of the main points of his classic work on the incarnation of the Word was that the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Christ had changed the course of human history. Now, if by the sign of the cross, and by faith in Christ, death is trampled down, it must be evident before the tribunal of truth that it is none other than Christ himself that displayed trophies and triumphs over death, and made himself lose all his strength. Death has been brought to naught, and conquered by the very Christ that ascended the cross. Christ not only conquered death, he dealt a death blow to Satan. As a result, idols and spirits are proved to be dead. The purpose of Christ's death and resurrection, moreover, was not simply to deliver believers from death and the devil, but positively to create anew the likeness of God's image for them, the image that they had lost when Adam sinned. Just as there were different views about the beginning of the kingdom, there were different views about its future course. Athanasius taught that the victory of Christ on Calvary had effects on world history, effects that were already visible in his day. He quoted Isaiah's prophecy that the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and concluded that this prophecy was being fulfilled already. Even now those barbarians who have an innate savagery of manners, while they still sacrifice to the idols of their country, are mad against one another and cannot endure to be a single hour without weapons. But when they hear the teaching of Christ, straightway, instead of fighting, they turn to husbandry. And instead of arming their hands, they raise them in prayer. And in a word, in place of fighting among themselves, henceforth they arm against the devil and against evil spirits, subduing these by self-restraint and virtue of soul. Athanasius believed that Christ would someday return, but before that occurred, Christ was already triumphing over his enemies. And to sum up the matter, behold how the Saviour's doctrine is everywhere increasing, while all idolatry and everything opposed to the faith of Christ is daily dwindling, and losing power, and falling. For as when the sun is come, darkness no longer prevails, but if any still be left anywhere, it is driven away. So now, that the divine appearing of the word of God is come, the darkness of idols prevails no more, and all parts of the world in every direction are illumined by his teaching. Tertullian and Eusebius. Some of the fathers describe the future progress of the word in less biblical and theological terms. Tertullian, about 150 to 220, the father of Latin theology and the first Christian theologian to write in Latin, wrote, If you look at the world as a whole, you cannot doubt that it has grown progressively more cultivated and populated. Every territory is now accessible, every territory explored, every territory open to commerce. The most delightful farmsteads have obliterated areas formerly waste. Plow land has subdued the woods. Domestic cattle have put to flight the wild beast. Barren sands have become fertile, rocks are reduced to soil, swamps are drained. The number of cities today exceeds the number of isolated huts in former times. Islands no longer inspire fear, nor crags terror. Everywhere people, everywhere organized communities, everywhere human life. The early church historian Eusebius of Caesarea, around 260-339, to 339, according to one scholar, viewed Constantine as a fulfillment of the Lord's promise to Abraham. Thus, the Roman Empire, of which Constantine is head, becomes for Eusebius the definitive force of providence in history, and promises to the Christian the prospect of an era triumphant and ever-improving society. Augustine Augustine, 354-430, to Bishop of Hippo, was without question the most influential of the early fathers and is arguably the most influential thinker and writer in Western history. According to one scholar, it was Christianity's philosophy of history, developed largely by Athanasius and Augustine, that marked the crux of the issue between Roman classicism and Christianity. In contrast to the pagan idea of cyclical time, Augustine taught that time is linear, moving toward a definitive goal. Augustine's eschatology is complex, but the note of optimism and progress is not absent. There is progress, for example, in the education of the human race, which has advanced like that of an individual through certain epochs or, as it were, ages, so that it might gradually rise from earthly to heavenly things, and from the visible to the invisible. It appears that Augustine believed that this progress in the knowledge of God would eventually lead to an earthly golden age. After outlining the six ages of history, Augustine described the seventh and eighth ages. The seventh age shall be our Sabbath, which shall be brought to a close, not by an evening, but by the Lord's day, as an eighth and eternal day, consecrated by the resurrection of Christ and prefiguring the eternal response, not only of the spirit, but also of the body. Some scholars deny that Augustine believed in a future golden age within history. Certainly, there are passages in Augustine that are difficult to reconcile with a post-millennial view, and Augustine believed that the future included a continuing conflict between the city of God and the city of man. Still, Nisbet concludes that there are grounds for belief that Augustine foresaw a progressive, fulfilling, and blissful period ahead on earth for humanity prior to the entry of the blessed into heaven. Thus, the early church does not present a unified view of the kingdom of God, its coming, its nature, and its future. There is, to be sure, a proper sober thread of teaching in the church fathers naturally flowing from their Christian sense of sin. But we find in this period the development of a confidence in the future that would become steadily greater and more this-worldly in orientation as compared with next-worldly. There was an emphasis upon the gradual cumulative, spiritual perfection of mankind, an imminent process that would in time culminate in a golden age of happiness on earth, a millennium with the returned Christ as ruler. The Reformation As in the early church, the reformers did not present a unified eschatology. Martin Luther, 1483-1546, for example, did not believe that the kingdom would triumph on earth and in history. In fact, he expected the world to end soon, his anti-millennial opinions were formalized in the augsburg confession 1530 which rejected certain jewish opinions which are even now making an appearance and which teach that before the resurrection of the dead saints and godly men will possess a worldly kingdom and annihilate all the godless By contrast, the Reformed Calvinistic churches have generally taught a more optimistic view of the future of Christ's kingdom on earth. John Calvin, 1509-1564, taught that the kingdom is already present as a result of the work of Christ. Calvin did not interpret the millennium as a literal thousand-year period in which Christ would physically reign from Jerusalem. Rather, the millennium was the time during which the church continued toiling on earth. What would happen during this period? In contrast to Luther, Calvin believed that the kingdom would have a yet greater triumph in history prior to the consummation, the second coming. While Calvin wrote a great deal about the suffering and tribulation of the church and its members, he also says a surprising amount about the triumph and growth of the church. As a result, his view of the kingdom is remarkably balanced. Commenting on 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Calvin writes, Paul intimates that Christ will, in the meantime, by rays which he will emit previously to his advent, put to flight the darkness in which Antichrist will reign, just as the sun, before is seen by us, chases away the darkness of the night by the pouring forth of his rays. This victory of the word, therefore, will show itself in the world. He also furnished Christ with these very arms, that he may rout his enemies. This is a signal, commendation of true and sound doctrine, that it is represented as sufficient for putting an end to all impiety, and as destined to be invariably victorious in opposition to all the machinations of Satan. Calvin thus believed that the kingdom was already present, and that it was triumphantly advancing to a great climax. This, he said, is what we ask for when we pray, Thy kingdom come. As the kingdom of God is continually growing and advancing to the end of the world, we must pray every day that it may come. For to whatever extent iniquity abounds in the world, to such an extent the kingdom of God, which brings with it perfect righteousness, is not yet come. Ultimately, the kingdom of God will be extended to the utmost boundaries of the earth, so as to occupy the whole world from one end to the other. Thus, the worship of God will flourish everywhere, and his law will be known to all nations, so that his will might be known everywhere. Other reformers held similar views about the future of the kingdom of God. The reformer of Strasbourg, Martin Bucer, 1491-1552, taught according to one scholar an eschatology that was less quietistic, and more dynamic, leaving more room for the renewal of this world and for the realization of the will of God in history than that of Luther. English Puritanism As heirs of the Calvinistic Reformation, the early English Puritans almost invariably held to an optimistic view of the future of the Church. As Nisbet writes, the Puritans had a philosophy of human progress that united past, present, and future into one seamless web that pointed to a golden future on earth, one of a thousand or perhaps many thousands of years. Puritan theologians taught that the kingdom of God would triumph on earth before the return of Christ. This view of the future of the kingdom was held by English Calvinists from the 16th through the early 18th centuries. In his commentary on Revelation, first published in Latin, 1609, Thomas Brightman wrote that, After the conversion of the Jews, shall the end of all prophets come, both when all the enemies shall be utterly and at once abolished, and when there shall be one sheepfold made upon earth, of all the elect, both Jews and Gentiles, Under one shepherd Jesus Christ, it is certain that this kingdom of Christ that is thus begun shall be eternal, and shall never be broken off again, and discontinued, and that it shall be translated at length from heaven into earth. But I find no mention in this book of the time into which this translation shall fall, that shall be finished perfectly in Christ's second coming." Later, in the 17th century, the great John Owen, 1616-1683, summarized the triumph of the kingdom of God as follows. First, fullness of peace unto the gospel and professors thereof. Secondly, purity and beauty of ordinances and gospel worship. Thirdly, multitudes of converts, many persons, yea, nations. Fourthly, the full casting out and rejecting of all will worship and their attendant abominations. Fifthly, professed subjection of the nations throughout the whole world unto the Lord Christ. Sixthly, a most glorious and dreadful breaking of all that rise in opposition to him. This victorious outlook was embodied in the 1648 Westminster Larger Catechism. The answer to question 191 states, In the second petition, which is Thy Kingdom Come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, the church furnished with all gospel offices and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate, that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting of those that are yet in their sins, and the confirming, comforting, and building up of those that are already converted, that Christ will rule in our hearts here, and hasten the time of his second coming, and are reigning with him forever, and that he would be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world, as may best conduce to these ends. The fact that this statement was produced by a church assembly shows that a victorious view of the kingdom was widespread among English Christians in the 17th century. These expectations, especially the expectation of the conversion of the Jews, motivated the English to missions. One of the leaders of the missions movement was John Eliot, who had a mission to the Indians in Massachusetts. Eliot believed that the kingdom of God was imminent, but he had a different view of the kingdom from what we now call premillennialists. Eliot defined the kingdom of Christ not as a personal, physical reign of Christ on earth, but as the condition which prevails when all things among men are done by the direction of the word of his mouth. His kingdom is then come amongst us when his will is done on earth as it is done in heaven. Broadly speaking, it has several dimensions— Rule over individual Christians, over the church, over civil governments, and over his eternal kingdom in heaven. Eliot believed that. The gospel shall spread over all the earth, even to all the ends of the earth, and from the rising to the setting sun. All nations shall become the nations and kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. This confidence led Eliot to support a broad range of mission activities among the American Indians, including education, translation of the scriptures, legal reform, church planting, and training of native pastors and evangelists. The influence of optimistic eschatology did not stop with the theologians and missionaries, however. The Puritans' view of an earthly and victorious kingdom was rooted in the church fathers, especially Augustine, and medieval sources, but they accomplished something new. Earlier, Christians had viewed progress as exclusively spiritual progress, rather than advancement in scientific and artistic knowledge. The Puritans, however, united these two lines of thinking. They did not deny the spiritual advancement of the kingdom, but they believed that progress in the arts and sciences was both a sign of the coming of the Golden Age and a means of bringing the Golden Age to fruition. Thus, the optimism of the theologians appears also in the writings and speeches of a wide spectrum of 17th century English figures. One scholar claims that Isaac Newton's work in physics and optics was motivated in part by the belief very much alive in Newton's England that the millennium would be preceded by a flourishing of the arts and sciences that would bring men nearest to the condition of prelapsarianism before the fall, Adam politicians echoed the same optimism. Oliver Cromwell speculated that the Puritan Revolution might be the door to usher in the things that God has promised. In 1641, shortly before the outbreak of the English Civil War, one member of Parliament expressed the hope that Parliament might lay the cornerstone to the world's happiness. Another contemporary expressed his belief that Parliament was able if need require to build a new world. By the 1660s, however, this optimism was waning in England. De Jong concludes that the restoration of the pro-Catholic Stuart monarchy to the English throne threw a damper on the expectations of many Puritans. Yet the early 18th century commentator, Matthew Henry, retained optimism about the future of Christ's kingdom. He had this to say about Daniel 2:44 44-45, where Daniel interprets the stone made without hands that grows into a mountain. It is a kingdom that shall be victorious over all opposition. The kingdom of Christ shall wear out all other kingdoms, shall outlive them, and flourish when they are sunk with their own weight, and so wasted that their place knows them no more. All the kingdoms that appear against the kingdom of Christ shall be broken with a rod of iron, as a potter's vessel. Psalm 2, 9. And in the kingdoms that submit to the kingdom of Christ, tyranny and idolatry and everything that is their reproach shall, as far as the gospel of Christ gets ground, be broken. The day is coming when Jesus Christ shall have put down all rule, principality, and power, and have made all his enemies his footstool, and then this prophecy will have its full accomplishment, and not until then. 1 Corinthians XV 24-25 in commenting on Isaiah 9, 1-7, Henry says that Christ's kingdom shall be an increasing government. It shall be multiplied. The bounds of his kingdom shall be more and more enlarged, and many shall be added to it daily. The luster of it shall increase, and it shall shine more and more brightly in the world. The monarchies of the earth... Were each less illustrious than the other, so that what began in gold ended in iron and clay, and every monarchy dwindled by degrees. But the kingdom of Christ is a growing kingdom and will come to perfection at last. thus, though De Jong is right about this optimistic view of the future was less widespread after sixteen sixty, it certainly did not die out entirely in England, and it was renewed during the revivals of the early eighteenth century. Conclusion. From the earliest centuries to the 18th century, the doctrine that the kingdom of God would triumph on earth has been taught by many Christians. While this emphasis varies from writer to writer and from century to century, a strain of this teaching has always existed within the Western Church. It was very strong in Reformed churches during the 16th and 17th centuries. In the next chapter, we will continue this historical survey by examining the history of American Christianity.